Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss how to implement scientific principles to optimize human performance. On today's episode, we have Dr. Rich Blagrove, lecturer in physiology and strength and conditioning at Loughborough University and researcher on strength training for middle and long distance runners. Rich has a wealth of knowledge from over 10 years of coaching and researching how strength training can improve running performance. Here we discuss important topics such as what factors separate the elite and amateur runners, what types of strength training you should be doing to improve your running performance, and how strength training may reduce the chance of you experiencing an injury. Whether you're an experienced runner or someone that is new to the sport, there are plenty of take-home messages you can implement into your own training. As always, follow The Progress Theory on Instagram and YouTube, head to our website, theprogresstheory.com, and check out all of our other episodes. But now, here is Dr. Rich Blaygrove. Dr. Rich Blaygrove, how are we? Yeah, good, thanks, Phil. How are you? No, I'm not too, not too bad. First of all, congratulations, because a new book is out, and it's already sold out? Yeah, um, yeah, the new book came out a couple of days ago now, I think. Um, and yeah, I think Amazon's saying that it's sold out, but it's probably because they didn't buy very many. <laughs> They didn't stock enough. No, exactly. There's hardly any in the warehouse in the first place. <laughs> no, I was sure it was pretty popular. Like I remember contacting you when it when I first saw it was coming out for the pre-order. We've got to get you on the progress theory so we can chat about it. And I never expected to be sold out within a within a day. I think they probably stock more than you're thinking. <laughs> Don't be so humble. It's, <laughs> it's going to be. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading it. I haven't got it just yet. I'm still waiting for my order. So yeah, I hope so. And you get them stocked up at the St Mary's Library. Yeah, yeah, definitely get onto the the librarian for sure. Uh, yeah, hopefully it's useful for for sports scientists and anybody that's got an interest in in middle and long distance running. But before we go and discuss the book in a little bit more detail, do you want to give a bit of an overview about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm a lecturer in physiology and the program leader for the masters in strength and conditioning at, at Loughborough University. Um, before that, I was a senior lecturer in sport and exercise science at Birmingham City University. And before that, I, I worked with UPhil uh, um, <laughs> at St Mary's University yep. for um, almost nine years, actually, where I was the program director for the undergraduate de- degree in uh, in strength and conditioning science. I guess alongside all those academic roles that I've had over the last thirteen years now, I've, I've always coached strength and conditioning. So in the early days, I worked with athletes across a multitude of different sports, but. And I guess I've kind of unintentionally specialised a little bit in work with uh, middle and long distance runners. And my PhD was looking at the effects of strength training exercise with post-pubertal adolescent middle distance runners. And I've kind of just carried on that research a little bit since I've started at Loughborough. Um, I've got a couple of PhD students who are looking at uh, running economy specifically and how we can potentially lower injury risk with, with endurance runners. Okay. So definitely two or three topics there that we wanted to talk about during this podcast. Yeah, seamless link. (laughs) Exactly. Do you want to go into a bit more detail about your book? Because that's providing a really good overview of strength training for middle and long distance runners. You sent me the contents list, so it's really quite extensive. Um, What was the aim with the book and what key things did you want to get across? Yeah, so this project started not too long after I finished my PhD in 2018. I was kind of looking around, I guess, in a geeky way to try and get my teeth stuck into something else. And I didn't have any uh, of my own PhD students that I was supervising at the time. Um, I presented at a few conferences around that period. And I was talking to a lot of distance running coaches and other sports scientists that were presenting at the conference. And we were all kind of 
agreeing that there's quite a lot of poor information that's put across in in running magazines and on the internet and so on. Um, and I guess kind of alongside that, I'm on quite a few Twitter, Facebook type groups where lots of runners discuss things related to sports science. And there's, yeah, there's just quite a lot of kind of misinformation and myths associated with a lot of topics within sports science. So everything from running technique to nutrition and different supplementation, and then the best ways to train and the best approaches to to training. I'm kind of very aware that uh, there aren't really any other books available, or at least the books are quite old. I try to cover lots of sports science related topics related to um, middle and long distance running. So I kind of just sat down one day and got quite excited that I was like, well, I'm in quite a lucky position here in that I've worked with loads of distance running coaches, loads of sports science practitioners who are kind of widely regarded as world leaders in their own areas. So I, I kind of had this network and I was like, I could I could write this textbook with these 20, 22 different topics and, and chapters, all based around different sports science issues for, for distance runners. And it will kind of plug this gap in the literature and hopefully start filtering down to, to grassroots and recreational runners um, to kind of get rid of some of this misinformation that's around. So that's how it started, really. And I guess six months after that, I sort of regretted doing it to some extent because um, <laughs> it was it turned into uh, to quite a big task. But yeah, certainly now it's out. It's yeah, I'm really happy uh, that I did it, and hopefully it will be a useful resource. Yeah, it's amazing that you're you've created something that's going to bridge the gap between the research out there and those that wishing to apply that research and done it doing it in such a way that's very understandable and can easily see just how easily applied this research can be and see really good improvements in people's running based on just focusing on these and having good understanding and knowledge over these basic topics regarding strength training for running. I'd like to like start off by giving an overview of what is necessary for being a good runner. Like what are the main skills and physical qualities that you would like to see in a runner, which ultimately led you to deciding which uh, topics you wanted to cover in your book? Yeah, it's a a great question to kick off with. Um, And I think as most people will be aware, like we know running, middle long distance running, it's an endurance type activity. So it's mainly limited by physiological attributes. So like our heart, our lungs, uh, the way in which our muscles are using carbohydrates and fats to create energy. And there's been a few kind of models, I guess, that have been put out over the years to try and describe what the different physiological components are that explain variability in performance. So can, in other words, explain who runs fast and, and who runs slow over a given distance. And it kind of boils down to three main factors. So you've got maximal oxygen uptake uh, that people abbreviate to VO2 max. And that's the most amount of oxygen that a runner can take from the atmosphere, bring into their body via their lungs, and then transport from their lungs around their vascular system towards the working muscles. And I guess that's kind of our gold standard measure. So that one best explains like who's going to be fast, who's going to be slow over like a 10k or a marathon type distance. As a second factor, we've also got something called fractional utilization, which is basically a fancy way of saying it's the percentage or the fraction of VO2 max that I can access for a given distance or duration. So very good runners are capable of sustaining very high percentages of their VO2 max for quite long uh, durations, whereas more recreational runners can sustain much lower percentages. And then we've also got running economy. So running economy, sometimes people refer to as efficiency, is essentially how much energy or oxygen I need to sustain a given sub-maximal intensity of exercise. So if I'm completing a 10k or a marathon, I'm I'm obviously at a sub-maximal running speed, and it's how much energy or oxygen I'm using in order to to complete that effort. So those are the the three main factors, and they obviously vary quite a lot uh, across different runners. That might be a good opportunity to do a bit of a comparison between the elite runners and, say, an amateur marathon runner. So you've listed three key qualities there, the VO2 max, the practical utilization and running economy. Obviously, for the elite runners, those three components are going to be better, greater. But how would it look like if you compared it to an amateur athlete? How much better are the elite athletes 
uh, regarding VO2 max, regarding running economy? Just what's the gap between the elite guys and the, uh, the amateur ones? Yeah, you're exactly right. So we see differences across all, all three of those components. So for example, with VO2 max, so when I get a, a well-trained or elite runner in the lab, a male runner would typically see high 70s, maybe low 80s for a VO2 max score. And that compares to your recreational runner who would typically be kind of mid to high uh, 50s. I still don't know what that is in terms of a percentage, but it's, yeah, about 20 milliliters per kilogram per minute less. And then similarly for females, we'd, we'd typically see elite runners hitting scores of in the low 70s, uh, whereas at the recreational level, it's more like high 40s, maybe, maybe low 50s-ish. Similarly, with the, the percentage of VO2 max that we can sustain, so the fractional utilisation, there's been a recent paper that came out that showed that Kipchoge, so the guy that, uh, that was the fir- first one to run under two hours for the marathon, he sustains a- about 87 to 90% of his VO2 max for that entire t- uh, two hours, which is pretty phenomenal. And you c- again, you compare that to kind of the masses in the London Marathon or any other major city marathon, and they'll be operating at around about 60, maybe 65% of their VO2 max. So again, there's, there's a difference of, of 25, 30% there. And the, the interesting thing with VO2 max is that in well-trained and elite runners, we typically don't see very much difference in it. So it doesn't explain differences in performance very well. So in other words, the athlete that crosses the line first in like a major city marathon will have a similar VO2 max to the guy that finishes 10th and probably 20th as well. So the first 20 runners across the line will have quite similar scores. But what's super interesting, at least for me, is that their running economy often differs quite a lot and it differentiates performance much more accurately. And so usually the guys that that win the medals in, in the big races are the ones with the better running economy against the guys that are coming maybe 20, 30th. And then if you go further down the field towards the moderately and, and lesser trained uh, runners, their economy gets, gets worse still. So economy is a really useful measure for us um, in terms of trying to explain who's, who's going to be the best performer. I remember when I started doing the marathon training before Christmas and I put on my Instagram that I was looking more into the physiological determinants of running performance and you got in contact and sent me a load of papers, uh, and one oh, in particular, that. which I yeah, one in particular which I particularly liked, I think it was by Andy Jones yeah. in regards to his work with Paula Radcliffe, and that was saying how Paula Radcliffe actually kind of peaked in her VO two max towards her late teens, maybe early twenties, but she continued to get better and better throughout her career, and it was running economy that improved those times. So it was like okay. Throughout her career spanning, what, 25 years, including you know, going through uh, the ranks as a teenager, that's when she was seeing like improvements in running economy and VO2 max leading up to like 20, 21 years old. But it was that peaked and then it was the running economy that's improved from then and that's what took her to the heights that she achieved in her career. Yeah. And I find that quite fascinating. No, absolutely. And that, that case study on, on Paula Radcliffe kind of, Illustrates the uh, that that exact point that I was uh, that I was just making really nicely. Um, and there's been a couple of other similar case studies uh, from cycling and cross country skiing and things. And yeah, they, they are only one person, but they're quite useful because we don't often have access to data in athletes over years and years and years to sort of longitudinally see how their their physiological attributes are changing. And I, I mean, I kind of saw similar with my PhD data in the. Again, I was really lucky to have, I think, six athletes across all of my PhD studies that were national champions in their age groups. So you'd have like a 16-year-old female athlete would come in and there'd be the the national cross-country champion or the English school's 3,000-meter champion. So they were like the best 16-year-old in the whole of the UK. And some of the VO2 max scores that those six national champions were getting were just absolutely phenomenal. I saw the male athletes getting high 70s and I think uh, the highest was just over 80. And some of the females were in the low 70s, which is <laughs> for a 16-year-old, that's, that's comparable to, to Paula Radcliffe, who used to hold the world record for the marathon. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely sure whether they topped out their VO2 max kind of genetically, like it might still improve a little bit. But my feeling is that, yeah, that the, the other qualities, so that the fractional utilisation and their economy would probably improve more over the next sort of five to 10 years. Mm. 
And I guess knowing that gives you the opportunity to make decisions on what you might want to concentrate on when actually developing a training program to get that athlete to improve their performance. And I think that nicely leads towards the question around strength training, because often strength training is utilized to improve running performance. But out of those three components, how does strength training actually improve them? And I guess a lot of the improvements you see from strength training are attributed to running economy. Is that right? Yeah, exactly that. So with maximal oxygen uptakes of VO2 max and fractional utilization, they're mainly limited by central factors. So a kind of heart and lungs and the ability to, to kind of get the, the oxygen to the working muscles. And then some limitations at, at a muscle level as well. So metabolic type things. But the interesting thing about economy is there's definitely things associated with physiology that are important, but it's also heavily related to biomechanics. So the way in which a runner is running in terms of their technique and the way in which they're uh, managing and controlling forces when their foot hits the ground. And then also neuromuscular factors as well. So obviously for me as a strength and conditioning coach, it's like, okay, there's things related to the muscle and the tendon which determine running economy. So therefore, if I can put in place some sort of intervention, so i.e. strength training, to try and improve some of these neuromuscular qualities, we should get an improvement in economy and therefore an improvement in performance. And yeah, as you allude to, that's typically what we see. That if we put a runner through a strength training intervention, which lasts two, three, four months, we see improvements in running economy of about 4%-ish on average. And therefore, we, get, we, we typically get improvements in time trial performance. So that additional 4% increase in running economy on top of a nearly maxed out VO2 max surely is going to see some really, you know, 4% doesn't seem too big, but really in the grand scheme of things, it's really quite an impressive improvement. And that's just from adding appropriate strength training in. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I mean, yeah, as you say, like a 4% improvement for a well-trained or elite runner is, is, is absolutely huge. Like it would potentially make the difference between making a podium and not making a podium or, or hitting a qualifying time and, and not. Um, and I think for a long time, like certainly when I first started getting interested in this area, there was a lot of studies and review articles that were kind of saying strength training is this thing that the only elite runners should be doing because of that reason. Um, but the, we published a systematic review as part of my PhD, and it, it kind of suggested that wasn't the case because a lot of the scientific experiments have been done with more recreational and moderately trained runners. And they also see similar improvements in economy. So although obviously running is, it's got to be the most important thing if running is your main goal, adding some strength training as well is also going to give, give more moderately trained runners a boost to their economy and therefore help their performance. So what types of strength training would you include in a runner's strength training program? You highlighted key physiological structures like the tendon and the muscle. Like, What types of training should we do to try and improve running economy by developing adaptations in these body structures? I think on a very general level, and without getting into yeah, a whole strength and condition degree or master's, um, you can probably group strength training into, into three main areas. So you've got heavy resistance training, which is kind of lifting your barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells mainly for repetition ranges of up to about eight or so. You've got explosive resistance training, which is moving light to moderate loads as quickly as we possibly can. So that would be things like throwing a medicine ball, maybe jumping onto a big box and then weightlifting skills. So things like clean and jerks and snatches, which obviously a big part of strength and conditioning. And then the third category being plyometric exercises, which are things like jumps, uh, hopping and bounding, where essentially we're trying to travel across the surface or, or rebound off the surface with as short a ground contact time as possible. And again, going back to the review that I mentioned before, we, we found that these, like all three of these different strength training activities seem to offer benefits. And there doesn't seem to be one out of those three which is better than the other usually my recommendation to most runners is, is that they attempt to try and include all of these, either across a training year with some sort of periodized model or a little bit more concurrently. And that there's bits of heavy resistance training, there's some explosive work and there's some plyometric training, but we're maybe like emphasizing a little bit more or less of each during different parts of the training year. 
So one of the questions that we had written into us, and we got a few and we've decided to try and infiltrate them into our questions that we wanted to discuss. So thank you everyone that did submit any questions. But there's one quite interesting question, which I believe was by Rob Oren. So Rob, thank you for putting your question in. And that was towards what you were describing about plyometric exercise. Now you could argue that running itself, because of the short contact times, is a plyometric exercise itself. So what are your recommendations of including plyometrics training into a strength training planning for a runner, considering that they're getting a lot of plyometric actions in their sport already? Yeah, thanks a lot for the question, uh, Rob. It's, it is a really good question. Quickly to recap what I'd, I mentioned. So, I mean, we know through the scientific literature, so the intervention studies that have used plyometric training, that it is a really potent stimulus, like it's, it's great at approving economy compared to just running alone. So compared to a, a control group that's, that's only carrying on their normal training. And so the, the reason why it's, it's a good thing is because it's quite biomechanically similar. Like if you think about the running action, it's unilateral. So we're going from right foot to left foot. The foot hits the ground. We get a lengthening initially of the muscle tendon unit, and then we get a shortening. And so if you think about jumping exercises, hopping, bounding, they're similar joint angles and the muscle and tendon are behaving in a similar type of way. But what we're doing with plyometric exercises is trying to increase the loading demand, so how much force is going through the body by either jumping higher than what we typically do as part of the running action or traveling further horizontally across the ground. So that not only increases the force demand, so therefore we get some strength changes uh, within the nervous system and, and the muscle, but it also increases the potential for the tendon to store energy. And so if we give the tendon more energy, what we're essentially trying to do through a process of adaptation is teach it to store and return that energy. So therefore, we're getting more of sort of free energy from the tendons after we've completed a, a plyometric um, intervention. I think the other part of Rob's question was, well, running's plyometric, so why not just kind of do running? And that makes complete sense. But essentially, we're trying to overload the mechanisms of, of plyometrics. If you think about running like a, low, a fairly low intensity plyometric, fast running, maybe a moderate intensity, sprinting, definitely a moderate intensity plyometric. What we're trying to do is overload the muscle and tendon. So we're trying to encourage it to become stronger and store and return more elastic energy. So we don't need a huge amount of volume of this. I typically, with the runners that I work with, the novice ones are only doing about 30 to 40 foot contacts or sort of repetitions of plyometric training. And the ones that have been doing it a few years are doing maybe 70, 80, or maybe 90 at very most. And that would represent like a really... Is that per week or per session? So that's per session, sorry. And they'll be doing a couple of bouts of this type of, uh, this type of work. And that, that's quite a meaningful dosage. And probably much more than that, you're going to start risking tendon-related injuries potentially. And so, yeah, going back to what I mentioned before, so we know that this is quite a useful stimulus and seems to get us good changes in running economy and, and sprinting speed and so on. And you can definitely see the link because running economy is about expending less energy when you're running at a certain speed. If you then improve the tendon's ability to store and return elastic energy, you know, there's no energy cost associated with that. So if the tendons are better at doing that, less energy cost, that means they can maintain a higher speed, or the body can maintain a higher running speed, but for less energy. So you can definitely see the link between why you should include this type of training for a long distance runner. Yeah, absolutely. Because plyometrics is quite high intensity for a strength exercise, it's definitely more high intensity than, than running and probably even sprinting. Like you do have to be a little bit careful with the way that you prescribe it, like start more down at the low to moderate in, end of the intensity range. And then gradually over months and probably years, just start nudging up the intensity and, and the volume as well. And yeah, just being cautious with, with how you're kind of progressing it uh, so you don't risk injury. Mm. There definitely seems to be, there's a certain amount of volume of strength training or plyometric training that you should do. And then anything greater than that could have uh, negative returns, uh, possibly injury. Have you ever seen examples where, maybe not just plyometric training, but examples where runners have done too much strength training and that in turn has led to either decrements in performance or potential injury? 
Not too many examples. Certainly none of the athletes uh, that I've worked with, but I would say that, wouldn't I? Mm. Um, Yeah, I think, I mean, a a lot of runners are often a little bit sceptical about definitely lifting weights, but just strength training a little bit more generally. So even getting them to do a small amount is often quite difficult. So there's there's not a huge risk that they're going to do too much, I guess. I guess the ones that are a bit more keener or, or buy into it a little bit quicker the point at which it's they're probably doing too much is when it is starting to consistently impact their running training. And so either if they put too much volume within a session or they're not allowing enough recovery between a, a strength training session and, the, and their higher intensity running sessions within the week, you could probably say, okay, you've not quite got the dosage right because it's impacting the most important running training sessions of your week. So therefore, we either need to back off a little bit on the volume and still try and achieve some benefit or we need to change the organisation of your strength training um, within the week. So I think that's the, probably the only occasion when they're probably doing too much. Like most of the recommendations, and certainly our guideline from the review article, was that probably two sessions a week is enough to achieve some of the benefits that I've already described. Some studies use, use three sessions a week, but uh, yeah, they don't really see very much more benefit. And yeah, a lot, a lot of the studies don't really see very much change in muscle mass or, or body composition as a result of engaging with strength training, at least for a few months. So there's not very much danger of this kind of hypertrophy response, so an increase in muscle mass. But I guess if you were to do loads, <laughs> and again, I've not really seen this happen, um, but if you were to do three, four, five strength training sessions a week, and you're starting to neglect the running training, then there's obviously going to be a, a risk of developing muscle mass, which is potentially then disadvantageous to running performance. I guess you start to understand how everyone's response to strength training is going to be very individual. And you, like you said about reducing the volume if you think you're doing too much or reducing the volume of strength training if you're starting to see it affecting the running training because that's the number one thing you should be focusing on. And obviously it's going to be quite auto-regulated. Um, everyone's trying to find that sweet spot, the right amount of volume, which is going to improve running, but not to the point where it has a negative effect on running. Yeah, exactly that. So yeah, we've kind of got our, our sort of guidelines which emerge from the scientific literature as a start point. But it's yeah, as you say, it's 100% then got to be individualized according to like, numerous different factors. And then yeah, tweaked and changed almost on a session by session basis, according to how the runner's feeling, how they're responding to the training, any kind of aches, pains, niggles they might be carrying. And I think when, certainly when I was based down at St. Mary's with you, I think that's why I was able to achieve quite a lot of success with runners because I was able to almost see them on a day-to-day basis. And so I was able to offer suggestions around how they should be tweaking and and changing any non-running related aspects of their training to make sure we avoided injury and tried to optimize the performance in their sessions. Most of the coaching that I do now is a bit more consultancy-based, so I don't get to see my runners very often. And it makes it much more difficult because you're relying on communication via via text messages and, and WhatsApps and things like that. So you don't build up that same level of communication and relationship that allows you to tweak and change training effectively. Like we're getting away with it so far, but it's yeah, it's much more difficult in that type of environment. So we, we kind of talked about how doing too much strength training could potentially lead to injury, but also strength training can actually reduce the risk of injury especially when given the right amount. Uh, how, how does that work? Yeah, it's a really good question for the main reason that we, we did a survey as part of my PhD, which had like 2,000 responses. So it was a pretty good sample size. And what we found was the most common reason why runners incorporate any type of strength and conditioning into their week is to try and reduce the risk of, of them getting injured, which... It's kind of surprising in some ways because what we've already gone through so far is all around strength training improves economy and it improves performance. So surely that should be the main reason. An equally convincing body of literature doesn't really exist for strength training reducing risk of overuse injury in runners, surprisingly. So like the, I guess the way that like S&C coaches and physios would come at this is, is largely theoretical. Like We know through quite a big body of work that like heavy mechanical loading, so like heavy resistance training or plyometrics is a really, really good stimulus for improving bone mineral density, tendon density, and some studies looking at tendon cross-sectional area, like definitely resilience of ligaments. 
and changes in fascicle length so we can cope with like heavy eccentric loading cycles a, a little bit better. And so therefore, if we improve the kind of resilience and capacity of these tissues, we should be able to cope with greater volumes or intensities of running training before that tissue kind of reaches its threshold of failure, if you like, and we start to get pain or, or some sort of injury. If we then overlay the correlation evidence, so what I mean by this is there's been quite a few studies over the years that have shown that low hip strength, so particularly like if you've got weak glutes, that seems to be related to injuries like gluteal tendinopathy, IT band, so iliotibial band syndrome, knee pain, patellofemoral pain, and, and even one or two studies looking at Achilles tendonitis. So that would kind of suggest that if I strengthen my glutes, I'm less likely to get those types of injuries. But actually, when you look at the intervention study, so a, a study that's tried to strengthen the glutes and then looked at incidents of injury over a long period of time, there aren't really very many studies that have shown that that's the case. Um, they are quite poor studies. So in other words, like the groups of participants they use don't get supervised. Uh, most of the exercise interventions, like, well, certainly me and you wouldn't regard as strength training. They're kind of these home-based types of interventions. They're often quite short, so they're maybe only a few months long. And so we probably need a longer period of time to actually get the adaptation and then see it have positive impact on injury rates. There's been one study which was done in the military soldiers that were undergoing basic training and they were doing a lot of running work as part of that and they showed that if we use a high frequency approach to strength training so they were doing strength training every single day as part of their warm-up for about 15-20 minutes so they saw lower injury rates compared to a group of soldiers that weren't doing that and were just doing their normal running training so it might be that a higher frequency approach and a kind of micro dose type approach is the better strategy to try and offset the risk of injuries. I guess the final point around it is we can kind of look to work in other sports and other training activities. And like you'll know as well as me, Phil, there's, there's a lot of work to show that injury rates are reduced, particularly acute injuries, things like strains and sprains and traumatic injuries to the knee, like ACL injuries, if we expose athletes to strength training interventions. And so we can kind of use some of that literature, I guess, to help us create an argument that strength training is going to help runners. It still comes across as an area that we don't fully understand, usually because there's so many factors in play. You like to think that, okay, if I did like a strength training program, you use the glutes as an example. One, is that going to just improve the tolerance of the tissues? So that then in turn leads to a reduction in potential reduction in risk and injury. Or does it help improve strength so then the muscular strategy to perform the sport skill then changes and that is more efficient and therefore there's less chance of injury you'd like to think being stronger in general improve those two particular factors but i guess we don't really know and a lot of that is down to all the methodological differences in the studies i mean you highlighted a few in your description and you know the literature considerably more than me there must have been quite a lot of differences in methodologies, but also a lot of factors which weren't included in the study but would affect it. So like length of the intervention, like intervention studies always seem to be around eight to 12 weeks. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, you might need much longer than that to actually see any positive influence from it. But Yeah, you're exactly right. And like the, the, the reason that any individual runner picks up an injury is, is going to be multifactorial. Like it's going to be really complicated. And so weakness around either the site of injury or something further up the kinetic chain, like something further up their leg, uh, might be a factor. But then again, it might not, like it might be nothing to do with it. And so I think that's where runners need like a, a decent physio that's uh, hopefully worked with runners in the past. Maybe some input from a biomechanist to kind of look at, uh, at their gait and their technique. And then as well as a strength and conditioning coach that can do some, some strength-based tests. And I think when you start to put all of the information together from those, uh, those different practitioners, you start to build up a picture of, okay, the reason you've picked up this injury is, is probably this reason. And then you can put in place an intervention that's a bit more individualized. Okay, let's get into some more applied questions. So I'm definitely interested to see what your opinions are on these. So say we've got two examples. We've got athlete A and we've got athlete B. 
say they're amateur athletes. One's trying to improve their 5K time. The other one's trying to improve their marathon time. Both involve lots of running. But what kind of key differences do you think you would see in their strength training based on the fact that they are trying to improve in different distances? So for your example, for 5K and marathon, I don't think there'd be a a huge difference in the approach that I would use for strength training, mainly because... Like we know that running economy is is a really important determinant of performance for both of those. It seems to become more important as the distance increases. Um, and so marathon runners, their performance is heavily influenced by running economy, like more so than, than 10K and 5K. But I'm not sure it would it would really change my approach to to like this the screening and testing process and then the recommendations that I would put in place. I guess the one area that it might is that typically with the runners that I've worked with in the past that have moved up from your kind of yeah 5k 10k distances towards the marathon is the main thing that changes about their training is the length of their longer run of the week and so typically that might be on a Sunday let's say and they maybe go from running I don't know 80 90 minutes on a Sunday to all of a sudden they're running two hours plus and that obviously then impacts them for the sort of 24, 48 hours after their long Sunday run. And so if you've got a strength and conditioning session planned for the Monday morning, and it's got like plyometrics and squats going through a lot of range range of uh, movement, like they're going to struggle to hit those sorts of positions. So it maybe changes your exercise selection. It maybe changes where you put your plyometric training in the week. Because if you, if you overload them too much in yeah that period after a very long run, you're going to be risking injury and obviously it's going to be influencing the recovery. I think probably, yeah, like a, a, a slightly um, different example. And sorry to, sorry to change your case study, uh, Phil. No, go for it. But um, certainly for middle distance runners. So like I work a lot with 800, 1500 meter runners and the pres- their, their prescription differs, not a lot, but it differs a little bit from, yeah, your kind of half marathon marathon runner because because of the speeds they have to operate at, particularly at this sort of time of year, so they're kind of in pre-season at the moment, and then moving into track season, that we kind of know from the research that up to about, I think it's about 24, 25 kilometers an hour, we know that the muscles around the calf are the ones that are contributing most in terms of proportion to the work that's being performed. So for sort of, yeah, 5K upwards um, runners, being really, really strong in the uh, in the calf complex and being strong through the Achilles tendon is, is absolutely key. Whereas at speeds above 25 kilometers an hour, which is pretty fast, but the sort of speeds they're hitting in interval training sessions for 800 and 1500 meters, we know that the contribution from the hip becomes much, much more important. And so being really, really strong in the glutes, so the glute max, in order to improve maximal speeds and some of those more anaerobic capacities is important. We know the hamstrings come under a huge amount of strain when we're, when we're getting close towards top speeds. So therefore, making sure the hamstrings are as resilient and robust as possible becomes really important for those middle distance guys. And so therefore, I, I kind of bias the training a little bit more around the hip, I guess, for those middle distance guys. And it's probably a little bit more biased around the foot and ankle for the longer distance guys. Um, but again, that's kind of a large generalization. No, that's really quite interesting. I mean, the next question, which you kind of already answered, was, okay, someone has just done a half marathon, what kind of changes would they need to do if they wanted to go up to do a marathon distance? And what you were kind of saying, especially the difference between 5k and a marathon distance is that the training modalities doesn't really change. However, how you organize your week and the changes in frequency and volumes is obviously going to change because all of a sudden you're doing much longer runs. However, when you start to really push up the speed and because you're doing lower distances, maybe 1,500 and uh, sort of 800 meters, maybe even further, the focus of developing certain musculature goes further up the chain. So the longer, slower distances focus around the calf and the Achilles complex. But as they get faster and faster, you want to focus more on hip extensions, the glute max yeah. and the hamstrings. So I, I think that's a really cool way of looking at running and where you might want to focus yeah for sure and like like i say that's it's a it's a big generalization like i I don't want to put the message out that the longer distance runners not doing glute work is is yeah Mm. is is a good thing like yeah like all all the 10k marathon runners that i've worked in the past will be doing a lot of stuff around around the glutes 
But yeah, the contribution of those muscles towards the speed that they're running at is like fairly minimal. Um, like they play a kind of supporting role, but the majority of, of kind of positive work that's been produced as part of as part of the gait cycle when the foot's in contact with the ground is mainly coming from well, to be really specific, like the soleus muscle, which is the deeper muscle within your, your calf complex. So therefore, making sure that that muscle in particular is really strong, resilient as a priority seems to be quite important. But then still obviously keeping in yeah, your, your hip thrusts and your RDLs and your, your back squats to make sure that um, the glutes are still, still really strong. One other question, moving away from strength training, really, uh, I wanted to ask. This was also put towards us on Instagram. We've got S&C Coach, who's supposed to be very knowledgeable about the technical skill of running, and ultimately that is going to lead them to make certain decisions around training. Training therefore means they have to make decisions around volumes of training. But then you've got the running coach as well, who does a similar role with um, trying to understand, you know, when they run, how long they run, how fast they run, that sort of thing. So it does sound like the the roles overlap. I think the question is more around, so if this is the case, how much is an S&C coach involved? What is their role? If if you've got an athlete and they've got an S&C coach and a running coach, uh, how much involved should the S&C coach be, especially because their decisions are so based off the fact that how much running that they're doing? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. So I didn't catch who sent it in, but thank, thanks for that question. And I mean, you'll be able to relate to this, certainly, Phil, that there's, there's always going to be some overlap between the remit that the strength and conditioning coach has and that of the technical coach, like whether we're talking about invasion game sports or, or court racket type sports and, and then endurance sports as well. Like for me, it's always just important that when I first start to work with an athlete and I, might, I maybe meet their technical coach for the first time, it's just being clear on sort of where that remit sits and like where the boundary is and what their expectations are of me. So do, do they kind of consider me like a bit more of a kind of wider sports scientist and kind of want to look after, yeah, aspects of gait retraining, recovery strategies, like maybe bits of nutrition here and there? Um, or do they just see me as sort of the strength coach, like set this athlete a weights program and that's all we, all we really need you for? I guess the two biggest areas that I've sort of seen over the years where the responsibilities overlap is probably the warm-up because the way that I quite like to use the warm-up as a strength and conditioning coach is it's an opportunity to develop some fundamental movement skills. It's an opportunity to kind of micro-dose a little bit of strength work, even if it's just with some elastic band-type resistance. And there's definitely an opportunity to do some maximal velocity sprinting, even if, even if it's just short distance and a few repetitions, and also potentially some plyometric-type work both because we know that that's a good stimulus to get to, to change running economy and performance, but also it kind of primes them for the session as well. And we should get some improvements in performance within the session if we do that work. And so if the technical coach kind of allows me to have some input into the structure and the content of the warm-up, I think over a long-term period of time that can be really beneficial. But there's obviously other occasions where the technical coach is like, no, they do a 15-minute jog, a couple of strides, and then I need them into the session. And so I don't really have very much input. And then the second area is probably changes to running technique and kind of in, in the sports science literature that would be referred to as sort of gait retraining. And gait retraining, it's, it's, really, it's a really topical area. I think physios, biomechanists, S&C coach, technical coaches, like they're all really interested in it. And I think the way in which we, our kind of mind works as a strength and conditioning coach is we're movement coaches Movement's really important. We need to set athletes up in the kind of shapes and positions that allow them to, to express forces really well and control and modulate forces really well. But the majority of the literature for around running technique kind of shows that, at least for economy and also for prevention of injury, that it maybe isn't actually that important that you see athletes with quite what we would consider not aesthetically pleasing running techniques. Like they look kind of quite ugly when they run, yet they've got really good economies and they don't really seem to get very many injuries. And then you see another athlete who looks really beautiful, really fluent and, um, and nice with the way they run. And they're just constantly picking up different niggles and it doesn't really make very much sense. Like I think where we end up with gait retraining is that it is very, very individual. And that if a runner is getting a lot of injuries, then it's perhaps one area that we might look at to try and change either the way their foot's hitting the ground 
like where their foot's hitting the ground in relation to the center of mass, their ankle knee hip alignment, potentially what their pelvis is doing. And so we could potentially tweak and change some of these things. And so that's sometimes been part of my remit as the S&C coach. And other times it's been something that the technical coach is, is taking care of. No, I, I noticed that gateway training was an important chapter in your new book. And that was one of the ones that I was really looking forward to. And when you were describing how it seems very individualized, where you see someone that looks like has a gait that is very different from what the technical model says, and that, you know, they're really economical and they have minimal injuries compared to someone that almost like looks exactly like the technical model, yet they're always injured. Um, it made me think of, what's the um, 5K runner? It's a chapter guy. Yeah. And there was a picture of his foot yeah. and how much the arch had collapsed um, to the point where it looked like he was running on his tibias. <laughs> and people were saying, look, it's really quite individualized because this guy has just run the most perfect 5K race ever. And look at his feet. So it shows just how varied things are. And I'm really looking yeah. forward to looking at that particular chapter because I think there's going to be a lot of gems in there that can make you think about questions when you're looking at each individual gate that you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think similar to the, the discussion that we had before, like, like maybe with this area of science, there's just not been the robust enough, like well-designed enough studies to investigate it. Mainly because mm. if you think about, if you think about like the majority of sports skills that we were, where we would try and prioritize perfecting technique, like trying to train movement to make it a bit more optimized, like a lot of those are kind of like one-off skills, or you maybe you maybe do the skill and then have a recovery, and then you and then you kind of do it again. Whereas if you think about running, like your foot's hitting the ground three times every single second, so even with a recreational runner, like the number of times they've practiced and ingrained that skill is is obviously tens of thousands of times, and so they're obviously going to be quite efficient and economical within their own technique, even if it's quite a bad technique, if that makes sense. So they've just learned to kind of self-optimize within their own constraints and and their own chosen technical pattern. And so therefore, if you try and make a change to it, it obviously, like the way that we would measure it then in the lab is, okay, you're less economical now, but it's just because you've taken them out of what they're very, very familiar with. So maybe you do need a much more longer term study. And it's the same with injury. Like if you perform the same pattern tens of thousands of times, your tissues that are being exposed to to the load are obviously going to get really, really familiar with it, so really robust. So with your example of Chapter Guy, yeah, he's got this uh, huge amount of pronation, like this inversion at the ankle and so on. So whatever tissues are being exposed to that load as part of his training are going to become like, probably super resilient, even if they're not the most appropriate tissues to load, if that makes sense. And so therefore, he'll be, he'll be familiar with it, it'll be economical with the technique, the tissues would have adapted to the load that's being imposed upon them. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that's right for everybody. Or he would have been better with a different technique had he uh, have learned a different strategy, perhaps. And so, yeah, I think it's a difficult question for science to unpick. <laughs> like most, we still need more. We still need more research to understand this area. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, <laughs> always what we end up saying. <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, Rich, that was incredible. Thank you so much for coming on The Progress Theory. Uh, I've you know, I've read your research over the years and it was great to sort of read your systematic review again. As soon as you were coming on this podcast, I was like straight to that systematic review. I've read pieces of individual research by you, but it was great to have a complete synthesis of everything you've done over the last few years. Uh, well, it's probably in the last 10 years, actually. Yeah, it was really good to hear it. And I'm really looking forward to reading your book as well. Where can people get in contact with you if they have any further questions or want to see more of what you're doing with strength training and running? Yeah, I'm more than happy for anybody to email me. Uh, my email is r.c.blaygrove um, at lbro, which is l-b-o-r-o dot a-c dot u-k. I guess in terms of social media, it's only really Twitter that I'm kind of active on in a professional sense. And so, yeah, my handle on Twitter is at rich underscore Blaygrove. And yeah, it'd be great to, uh, to chat via that as well. Cool. And then as a final question... If you had to listen to the progress theory, who would you love to have on as a guest? You think of sports science, running, that sort of thing. Who would be a great guest who'd want to learn more from? I don't know if it would be possible to to get these guys on, but certainly like Dan Pfaff and Stuart McMillan. Like, I've, 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 yeah, I've been a big fan of their work and followed them for a long time. 
Um, I'm sure they're in demand when it comes to things like podcasts. Because yeah, I can imagine. From a coaching perspective, yeah, yeah. yeah they're, they're clearly outstanding coaches. I've not met either of them, but uh, the information that they put out and their well reputations and uh, achievements over the years in terms of the athletes they've coached is, is pretty phenomenal. So if there ever was the opportunity to get yeah, one or both of them on, I think that would be tremendous. No, that's definitely an aim. And if <laughs> people are unfamiliar with the names Dan Faff and Stuart Mamillion, check out Altis. It's where they coach and teach and they do a lot of education there as well. So definitely check them out. I saw Dan Faff speak at the Arite Symposium, one of their conferences, and he was very good there. So yeah, definitely a future guest, fingers crossed. Anyway, Rich, thank you so much for that. I'll speak to you soon. Yeah, thanks again for the invitation to be on, Phil. I miss, miss our St. Mary's Day, so it's been great to chat. <laughs> I know, the good old days. Yeah. <laughs> cool, mate. I'll speak to you soon. Thanks a lot, Phil. Thank you, Dr. Rich Blagrove, for coming on to The Progress Theory and talking about his experience and research on strength training for running performance. It was a great episode with so many takeaway messages, which, whether you are an experienced runner or an amateur runner or someone looking to get into running, there is something in this episode to help you improve your running training. Now, I just want to provide some final thoughts on some key areas which really stood out to me. Firstly, how using strength training to improve running economy is really important for all levels of runners. Now, Rich talked about some research which utilize strength training interventions of around eight to 12 weeks long and how they had a positive improvement in running economy of around 4%. Now, 4% might seem really small, but at the elite level, this is going to be huge on their running performance. Even at the sub-elite and amateur levels, an improvement of running economy of 4% is gonna have a massive improvement in your running performance. Secondly, how a runner's strength program for all different distances will generally look the same. Like it will generally consist of strength training, ballistic training, and plyometric training. But it's how we structure these training modalities around running training, which is the main difference. So if you've got someone training for a 5K, if you've got someone training for a marathon, their running programs are going to be completely different with different volumes and different intensities. So we've got to then organize their strength training around these differences to make sure it's more appropriate for that person. Thirdly, always take advantage of the warm-up. It's a great opportunity to regularly incorporate strength training. A warm-up that is used appropriately is actually a form of strength training. And then finally, just wanted to reflect on one of Rich's surveys that he did on runners for his PhD work, which showed that most runners did strength training to reduce the risk of injury. However, it's more proven that strength training improves performance, not reduces the risk of injury. Theoretically, strength training should decrease the risk of injury, and it is definitely a reason why we all do it, if you think about it. Replacing certain structures of the body, like the muscles and tendons under stress, in order for them to adapt and become more tolerable of all the stresses that we impose on them when we're running. So they should get more tolerable. Strength training will hopefully lead to less injuries, which means better and consistent running, which means an increase in performance. However, reducing injury risk is harder to prove, and the quality of science on this isn't actually great at the moment, so fingers crossed it'll be quite interesting to see where this goes. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have learned a lot from it, because I certainly did. Please follow at The Progress Theory on Instagram and YouTube, head to our website, theprogresstheory.com, and listen to our other episodes. And we will see you in the next one. <laughs>